Okay, let, just, let us make a start. I'm uh, Robert Wade. I'm a professor of political economy here at LSE. I want to uh, introduce David Sinkton, who is the director of the floor. Um, David has a long track record of making science uh, films, especially films about uh, global warming, although his best-known film is called In the Shadow of the Moon, about the Apollo astronauts. Um, this uh, film that you're about to see um, was selected for the Sundance Film Festival um, earlier uh, in 2010. Uh, more than 2,000 applications to screen documentaries at the Sundance were received, and this was one of 20 which were accepted. Um, tomorrow, this is an important point, for those of you who want to see it again, and those of you whose friends wish to see it but are unable to be here tonight, tomorrow there's going to be a, a screening at the Curzon Cinema in Soho. The Curzon in, at Soho is 6.30. There are still tickets available. It's been moved to the main screen in the Curzon. So that's the opportunity. It'll probably be showing more widely in July. Um, the film lasts for just over 80 minutes. So if we start in just a few minutes, it will end just before 8. And then we have a shortish uh, panel discussion um, involving, amongst others, David and Philip Kogan from The Economist and Francesco Caselli, who's a professor of economics here at LSE. So let's uh, make a start with the introduction of David. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Um, Normally, uh, when I introduce this film, I have to apologize for the fact that it's about economic theory and has graphs and things. And um, so I, I take it all that meat and drink to, to you lot, so I won't have to apologize about that. But I do feel a bit nervous. I feel like I'm presenting a film about birth control to the Vatican. Um, <laughs> but in any case, um, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, it does have cartoons and jokes. I'd be very interested to see what you think about the perhaps slightly different take that this film has on the general financial crisis to some of the other films that have been made, and no doubt we'll all get roasted afterwards. Thank you. Hey. Oh, right, okay. We're losing our okay, mind. We, just because of the time, I think we'll uh, leave. The, uh, the credits, credits. and go straight to the, the panel discussion. For those of you uh, interested, we'll spend 15, 20 minutes, something like that. We'll just see how it goes. Um, so let me just introduce the, why don't you take your seats, the, the panelists, uh, Philip Kogan from The Economist, David Sington, whom you know, and um, Francesco Cassetti, uh, who is Caselli, uh, sorry, uh, Professor of Economics here. We have just seen a film about the greatest wave of financial crime in history. Um, it's, to call it a financial bubble is really to, uh, to soft sell it. It is, it is seriously um, fraudulent selling of debt. But the point of this film is to go behind that and to show how that wave of uh, fraudulent selling of debt itself was the result of these deep trends in income distribution. We've, this film focused mainly on the United States, but the point is that 
or all the major economies, very much including China, um, uh, the share of labor, the share of wages has been in, in GDP has been falling, the share of profits going up. And that, uh, in other words, the share of wages or the growth of wages falling behind the growth of labor productivity, which is much the same thing. And that central dynamic uh, has producing all kinds of dysfunctions in the world economy as a whole, including the buildup of financial fragility that's tipped into crisis, including these enormous trade imbalances that seem so um, difficult to, to reduce and lead the Americans to do things like focus in on China, China's exchange rate, which is a completely secondary issue, rather than to address the, the central issue, which is this problem of falling wage share in GDP and rising share of profits. So um, there is no structure to this panel discussion, but I think it's appropriate for David to uh, begin with really any kind of comments that you want to make. Um, well, my, my comment's in the film, in a way, so I'd be very interested to hear what uh, people think about it and any questions that people might have. Well, just, okay, just quickly, though, do you have any, either of you two have any um, immediate reactions that you want to share with us? Well, I, I think there are a couple of things. I think it's a very entertaining and enjoyable film, and I agree with a lot of it. I think there are a couple of things that one should reflect on. As you mentioned, this is not purely an American problem. So there were housing booms in Britain, Spain, Ireland, Iceland, Australia, uh, not all of which were governed by the same factors that um, were described in the film, and there were different factors. And, and different China, countries. too. Remember? And China was one now. Yes, we haven't had the hmm. bust yet, but in terms yet. of the... Um, amount of uh, the loan to value ratio in China is no, nothing like the same issue that we've, we've yet experienced um, in Britain. Of course, we hadn't burst the housing bubble. The other point which I thought came out of the film, which um, at the LSE you ought to reflect on, is that the, the period from the 1940s to the 1980s, early 80s, which is known as the Great Compression by some economists, was very unusual in history. So a period when um, income inequality was massively reduced uh, is the exception in economic history. If you, you just have to look at Britain and see the vast number of country houses out there which were built in the 18th, 19th centuries to see that wealth inequality was very high. You don't have to watch Downton Abbey to see mm. a family that can employ you know, dozens of servants to see that, that that was so. It's interesting more to study why it was possible in the 1940s to 1980s to get the wealth of the vast majority of people um, yeah. up. And then the factors behind this widening of inequality in the last 20 or 30 years, as you know, are quite complicated and people argue about them all the time, whether it's to do with technology and the, the talent, the market for talent that makes footballers and you know, footballers didn't used to be paid more than the rest of us. They were had a maximum wage cup and now they're fantastically wealthy. Uh, nor did bankers, by the way. Nor did bankers, in, in absolutely. 19, in 1980, bankers were paid the same as other people at the same level of education and so on. Well, I have an explanation of that, but I don't want to get too, take too much time. But the other interesting thing about it, it seems to me, is that you mentioned um, that it all ended in the, in the 1970s, 1980s. And we have to remember that at the end of that long period of income inequality, there was an economic crisis that 1970s were not the, a glorious period. Um, so the changes in policy that were brought in the 1980s were in, in a sense a reaction to the perceived crisis that, it, that emerged in the 1970s when we had massively high, un, uh, un, rising unemployment, very high inflation, strikes, 
Um, it was yeah. thought that Britain was ungovernable. So it, it wasn't quite, although the 50s were seen as a golden age, though not, of course, if, it, if you were an African-American, it wasn't a golden age yes. at all. Um, by the 1970s, it didn't seem so well. Yeah, I mean, uh, my, my, my comment on that is that, that um, I agree with you. It's obviously that that period is, is a little bit exceptional. But you don't, if you look at the figures, you do have that same upwards run in income inequality, the, the same shift up to the top 1% in the decade and a half, couple of decades before the Wall Street crash of 1929. And so I think, uh, for me, a lot of the factors that are sometimes called, it, called up to explain this in terms of technological change don't seem very convincing because it's happened before. So I don't know that we didn't have the internet in the 20s. I mean, there obviously was this, this other side of it, which was the immensely productive, innovative new industries coming along that were because of this, on the back of consumer debt, a lot of very profitable companies, and that, that profit was where, what was fueling and, and uh, you know, fueling the, the rise in incomes of the people who owned and, and, and ran, ran those businesses. So I think it's quite interesting to take, a, it's necessary to take quite a long historical perspective back, back a century. But yeah, I mean, I remember the 70s. Of course, in a sense, it's... Uh, you know, all these things were a bit of a pendulum in the UK. There was a general feeling that the unions had got, you know, become a problem in the economy. I don't think that Mrs. Thatcher's ambition was to sort of impoverish the middle classes at the expense of a of a small uh, elite. That was uh, certainly not what she intended to do. I think, I and mean, I voted for her. I certainly hope not. Um, <laughs> but um, nonetheless, I think that's partly, oddly enough, um, you know, you can see the way in which the the fall in union power has allowed, been one of the factors has allowed this um, uh, income distribution to change. But I think myself that the, the debt argument is a very particularly important one to understand the relationship between debt and income inequality, that debt is intrinsically regressive in some sense, which I guess is good news for George Osborne, you know, that there is something um, progressive intrinsically about trying to reduce debt, whether it's private or public debt. Just before Francesco comes in, let me just mention two statistics to illustrate beyond what the film said. I said it in the interview, but that was cut out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we cut out a lot. <laughs> the magnitude of the upward distribution, if you take the Clinton years and the total increase in national disposable income during the Clinton years, then 45% of the increase went to the top 1%. That was the Democrats. Under Bush, the Republicans, that same figure, the percentage of total uh, uh, increase, the of the total increase in national disposable income during the Bush years that went to the top 1%, that percentage is 73%. 73% went just to the top one. Yeah, and that's interesting that, that that little pause in this shift of income up to the top during the Clinton administration is also the period when the government stops running this deficit. So, I mean, I think that that's, to me, it's also evidence of relationship between debt creation and income polarization. Well, it's hardly a pause. Forty-five percent went to the top. <laughs> no, but if you if you look at if you look at that graph, it's sort of going up, and it sort of does that, and then it goes up. Anyway, it's just phenomenal. Um, so Very quickly, I also found the movie extremely uh, stimulating and interesting. The most novel part for me was actually the main thesis of the film, which is 
to link the bubble to this uh, widening inequality in the US. And, and I thought the story and the, the hypothesis there is, is, a, is a very interesting one. Basically, as I understand it, is that the uh, income at the top growing so fantastically create a increasing benchmark for standard of livings and aspirations. For other people lower down, yeah. yeah. But for people in the middle, but people in the middle's wages are stagnating, so the only way to try to catch up with the top is to... Uh, yeah. So they, a very interesting hypothesis. Um, uh, the one thing I wanted to uh, point out that I, maybe the, the movie could potentially be addressed is whether the timing really works super well. So the inequality trends start in the mid-70s, and they are they're fairly steady increasing inequality within educational group, uh, across educational group, and it's a steady, steady increase of inequality across, you know, it's kind of a fractal increasing inequality at all levels. It's in the U.S.? In the U.S., in the mid-70s. So you see, you see continuing rising inequality since the mid-70s, and actually, uh, paradoxically enough, uh, perhaps, uh, uh, at least depending on how you look at the data, perhaps a slight a slight flattening out in the early in the early 2000s and then a, 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 an acceleration. Whereas the house prices, all the action is after 2000. Yes. So that, that I think is an interesting potential disconnect. That well, well, uh, the, the argument. Just make me a last point, and then I. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> the, the other things I I, um, I I sort of I, I was wondering whether there should have been more on the movie about is about the role of financial innovation. So I think you know a very important part of the story, as far as I could understand, is the massive impact that the securitization has had on the practices of financial institutions. And basically, that um, that is the ability of uh, uh, building uh, composites of mortgages from very different parts of the country. There is a very revealing scene where this uh, mortgage guy uh, uh, recites down the list all the cities of names, and they are all over the country. Now, that was very much felt like a magic formula to strip risk out of the real estate market. And I think it's very hard to understand why the financial industry was so willing to extend mortgages at these incredibly generous terms, apparently, apparently very generous terms, uh, without the uh, what have been turned out to be illu illusory uh, sense of having removed risk from the real estate market through securitization. Yeah. I have a couple of comments on this. Again, the timing. It's absolutely true that if you look at, for example, whale, w male wages, that, they, that the turning point is in the 70s. These graphs are actually reported income. It's IRS data. It's what the taxpayers are reporting. And in the States, typically, people report by household. So mostly it's husband and wife reporting together. So if you look at that data, the turning point is very much in 1980, it's not in the 70s in fact, because what's happening is that more women are coming into the workforce. So as far as households are concerned, even though the um, male wage is stagnating, typically what's happening is the, the wife is going to work. So you don't really see household incomes being being clobber or, or starting to stagnate until about 1980. It's almost exactly 1980. Well, if you look at those figures, okay. But what I would say about the housing bubble is, yeah. as we said uh, in the film, the housing bubble follows hard on the heels of the dot com bubble, which in turn follows hard on the heels of the 87. So, what I would say uh, is, sorry, the, on the heels of what? The 1987 stock market crash. So, you've got this series of bubbles. Yeah. Well, emerging markets in the in the interim. I would yes. Say. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's a ser anyway. There's a series of bubbles. So to me, what what's going on is that you're shifting 
purchasing power in the economy from consumption of goods into the asset class because you've got you're changing from you've got 15% effectively of the total spending power of the economy that's gone from the bottom 90% really to the top 1% actually is the top 0.1% at least half of it and that just changes the argument I would make is that changes what's in demand so there's less relatively less demand for cars and relatively more demand for second houses and relatively more demand for stocks and shares and bonds and so forth because people at the top, you know, if you're earning hundreds of millions of dollars a year or tens of millions of dollars a year, you're, you're bound to spend most of your money on assets, not goods. And so I think that's, and it's just a question of where does the bubble come? And it's a, it, it migrates from the stock market into real estate. And the great problem is that the financial industry has made the great escape on the whole. And we are in basically the same situation with the same dynamics just beginning to play out yet again. It is really extraordinary that there's been so little learning. Anyway, um, yes, you wanted to come in. Yes. First of all, thank you for your Do you want to use the mic? First of all, thank you for your comments and thank you for Is it on? Yeah, it's on. Yeah, I can hear. Yeah, I think yes? Yeah. Sort of. Yeah, yeah it's on. It's on. Yeah. Um, so, Professor Wade, you. After the film, just you said uh, we should call this financial crisis a financial crime, which I think presupposes an intention. So my question is, is there an intention, or is that just like a structural opportunity which the elites then took somehow uh, advantage of? And this is linked to the question which comes up in the film towards the end of responsibility, to which this former mortgage uh, broker remains uh, surprisingly silent. So I would be interested to hear maybe from each of you of the panel, who is to be blamed or who is to be held uh, the most responsible for, for this crisis? Is it politics, which started with Thatcher and Reagan, as we learn? Is it uh, the financial corporations who now got away with it? Or is it something else? Is it the ideology, the flaw in the ideology? Look, the, the, uh, the, the mortgage broker who sold a mortgage for a $715,000 house to a Mexican strawberry picker working on casual wages, earning on average $14,000 a year in the United States, not able to speak English. That mortgage broker uh, knew perfectly well that that person could never begin to repay that mortgage. And the point is in less extreme form, that's what was happening wholesale by mortgage lenders who uh, knew that these mortgages could never be repaid, but it wasn't going to hit them because, as, as the film brings out very clearly, of this securitization technology that allowed them to then sell it on to Wall Street, where it was packaged up, and sold then in, to municipalities in northern Norway or such other places around the world. So the, the mortgage break, the broker wasn't going to suffer. Mm -hmm. But anyway, do you want to... Yeah. I, uh, 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 yes, Francesco, yes. So very briefly, I completely agree. Clearly, there was a lot of operators that were extending uh, mortgages knowing that they wouldn't be repaid. That's very clear. But the question that I think we should also ask, why were they able to do so? Yeah. And, and I think that, that's a very important question. So, and there, there are many responsibilities uh, across many different uh, institutions and, and, and agents, but I, I just cite a couple of things. Um, these mortgages, were, as I mentioned, were then repackaged into packages of mortgage-backed securities, which would routinely get triple A ratings from the, from the rating agencies. Mm -hmm. 
triple A, triple A, yeah. yeah. So, and that's, you know, without the triple A rating, no bank in Norway even goes close to these things. Yeah. So, you know, if just, just the, triple, the, the rating agencies just yeah. carry a very, very important uh, part of the blame here. Yeah. Now, uh, the Fed, there was a lot of discussion before the crisis, uh, whether the, it should be part of the remit of the Fed to prick the bubble or not. And the Fed took, consistently took the position that it wasn't part of their job. Greenspan's now clearly shows that he regrets that decision. But that's another place where you can see responsibility. <coughs> I'd just like to say that, although you're right about those mortgage brokers, we did have two people in the film who clearly, uh, the one was a speculator who was deliberately buying lots of properties in an attempt to get rich, so he, he was taking his own uh, pl pl um, plan. The guy from the New York Times who was borrowing without stating his income, so knew he was taking a lot of risks. So there was some responsibility from individual people. And one fact which didn't come out of the film, which I think you might have focused on if, you were, if it was a balanced piece, not a polemic, was that um, politicians were urging financial institutions to lend more to poor people. There was a whole drive for about 30 years, particularly under Clinton, where, and if you have to lend money to poor people to buy houses, then you have to relax your lending standards. If you relax your lending standards and more people can buy houses, and the, the proportion of home ownership went from about 63% to 69%, then more people buying houses means that prices go up, which means you have to, if, if your income hasn't gone up, you have to relax the lending standards more. So, and people who try to crack down on that were often Republicans, not Democrats. And um, the Democrats argued often that you should not um, cut back on the lending. So the classic Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were two institutions which were run by people, former Democrats, one friend of Bill Clinton, who earned millions of dollars. His annual salary was higher than the entire budget of the agency, which was deemed to monitor him, his agency. And the, um, the attempt for that agency to try and stop some of these lending practices were blocked in Congress by Democrats, arguing that it was uh, unfair on poor people to stop it. Um, okay, I'm going to disagree politely with both of you. <laughs> the Mexican strawberry picker is this sort of end member Again, I think that the, the thing to bear in mind is that the vast majority, only 10% of subprime mortgages were advanced to first-time buyers. Overall, they're refinancing mortgages, and it's not really, to my mind, the story is obviously, you're quite right, that there is an extension of, of lending to, you are recruiting, as you run out of, of good quality borrowers, there was a certain amount of recruiting into the pool of mortgage, people with mortgages, people of lower credit quality. But overall, the problem was that existing borrowers, their credit quality was in decline because their incomes were under pressure and they were effectively um, you know, couldn't cover their living expenses, they were running out credit card debts and that's where a lot of the, or there were things like um, uh, medical bills and so forth, if you analyse a lot of that, their refinancing is in that. So I think that's the thing to, to um, concentrate on. I also, I don't really, the reason it's not in the film that this business about the government encouraging home ownership is I actually, if you look again at the history of that, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are relatively late into the subprime business. The people who are in the subprime business who really push it are companies like AmeriQuest. They weren't the banks originally. Those companies are not covered by all of the legislation which was encouraging banks to lend. So I think it's 
to my mind, not very credible that legislation in Congress was a causative factor because the agencies that were actually the, the entities, the businesses that were really the pioneers in subprime were simply not covered by that legislation at all. And then when the people who were running Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac saw how much money was made, you're quite right, they lobbied their Democratic friends in Congress and the Democrats are uh, equally the blame of the Republicans. I, this is not a party political piece at all. Um, to, to allow themselves to get in on that bandwagon. But I don't think that you can see the behaviour of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac as really anything other than that they made the, they jumped on a bandwagon and was already rolling. Okay. Um, up at the back, I hope that we will also get onto what's happened since the crash yes. and what, what is being done to. Uh, well, thank you. I'm very. Uh, uh, very good to, to call presentation, very good film. Um, and I think it clarified uh, some of the issues. Now, uh, when uh, Alan Greenspan remarked that the smartest of us were not smart enough, um, I mean, I'm talking of the regu regulators, he remarked, I think that remark of me, is there anything in that remark of his? And if it is, then uh, what future do we have? I mean, uh, how do we run this complex world that we have at, uh, at, uh, at our hands? So yes, if the smartest people are not smart enough, um, what's the way out? Thank you. Well, my, my own, uh, and, and I'm sure everybody else has a view on this, I, and this goes back to the question of what's really to blame. To me, you know, you can really blame economists, I think, for this. Because <laughs> it's these ideas that, that start about the efficient market. Those are the ideas that Alan Greenspan is sort of latching onto that validate a view that he honestly believes, but it's also rather convenient, because as we show, this sort of loose money policy tends to make all the people that Alan Greenspan is rubbing shoulders with in Manhattan, very well-heeled people, they're doing really well out of it. So it's hardly surprising that he thinks the system is working beautifully, as Arthur Laffer, I mean, the Laffer curve, the system's working beautifully if you're in Manhattan and you're in the financial world, and that's the world that you know and you don't see and not thinking about the rest of it. So I think that everybody in this, most there were, of course, crooks and outright con men involved, but most people in it sincerely believed what they uh, uh, um, believed. But, of course, people have a tendency to believe what's convenient. So I think that Alan Greenspan lacked the intellectual rigour to question his own comfortable, actually received ideas. I mean, I think that that, that that congressional testimony is the kind of absolute sort of, you see a man's into towering intellectual reputation just come crashing down to the ground. And he's revealed as a rather second-rate thinker. Do you want to come in on uh, economists? <laughs> um, so, certainly, the people who came up with the fish market bodies were eco are economists, so um, in that sense, uh, economists uh, deserve uh, the blame. Um, that's not to say that all economists believe in the fish market hypothesis, and uh, if you uh, do a Google search for paper in economics about bubbles in other markets, you will find thousands and thousands thousand of papers. So it's, it's yeah. certainly not that economists are not aware of bubbles, or haven't, there are many people uh, economists who have uh, done lots of research on bubbles. I think if you have asked, uh, I don't know, four years ago, five years ago, um, a, a sample of economists, how many thought the housing prices were reflecting fundamentals and how many thought there was a bubble, my guess they would have found 
perhaps not a very large majority, but probably a majority thing is about work. How many years ago? Four, five, five years ago. Four, five. Um, just apropos of the lady who said all we want them to do is to do the arithmetic, um, there's a joke amongst economists which goes, um, there are three types of economists, those who can count and those who can't count. <laughs> so, so they're definitely to blame. I think you, you, uh, yes. Thank you. Um, I wonder what the panel thinks of um, the issue of banks that are too big to fail, because it looks to me like since the crisis is over... Sorry, the issue of what? Bank too big to fail, institutions that are too big to fail. Okay, banks too big to fail. fail. Because it looks to me like they haven't quite addressed that, and um, this financial services sector has become more concentrated, not less concentrated since the crisis. Yes. Uh, what, is the, what, what has happened in terms of the banking, the, the, the big banks becoming even bigger, more global, more entrenched... Uh, more secure that they will not be allowed to fail. Any comments? No, I think that it is a problem. Uh, it was the inevitable real result that they forced some banks together in Britain, obviously, Lloyds and HBOS. Um, and there isn't a very good answer to it because, you know, Glass-Steagall, which was the separation of investment banking from commercial banking, which worked pretty well for 60 years, was eroded by technology and made it very difficult to reconstruct. And if you look at what happened, say, in Britain, for example, Northern Rock, which was one of the first banks to fail, wasn't an investment bank at all. It was very concentrated on the mortgage market. So it wasn't the mix of the two that brought that down. Um, the answer that they've chosen to pursue is to make the banks hold more capital. And in the long run, in the long run, that is the right idea and it will indeed reduce the amount of money that goes to bankers because one of the problems is that the people who make a lot of money in banks have been charged an artificially low cost of capital to traders for the risks they were taking, they've been underestimated internally. When the amount of capital goes up it will be much more difficult for those people to make the kind of huge bonuses but unfortunately for us all, all that's happened in the last two or three years is that Main Street has enjoyed a very sluggish recovery has basically stabilised and all the bonuses have come back to the big banks and the problem looks worse than ever and um, the fact that it might get better by 2019 or 2020 is probably of limited comfort. But just uh, hang on, something has to be added to that. The Basel III rules raise the amount of capital required from something like 2% to 6% and as Martin Wolf said, uh, tripling nothing is still <laughs> nothing. Martin Wolf th thinks that figure should be at more like 20% to be safe, but you wanted to come in. Yeah. 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 Here. Um, we have heard at some point from one of the interviewees that when the price of assets goes up, their demand often goes up. And I think that's probably the key problem. So I would like to know, are governments actively engaging in devising regulation that disincentivizes this behavior and maybe makes uh, investment in productive activities more convenient than investment in assets. Thanks. Yeah, that's a very no, important I, question. I think that's the key challenge. 
is basically to persuade people to find a way to make capital, to make it not the most attractive place to put your money into credit card debt or, or mortgage debt. And again, I think it's helpful to take a sort of historical perspective and to understand what you were saying, Philip, right at the beginning about what it is about the post-war period that is different. And the way that I would think about that, uh, as an amateur uh, in these matters, is that really the interesting thing about the 1940s is what happens is that uh, the government takes, in the States particularly, takes private savings in the form of war bonds and basically forces that money to be invested in high technology, cutting edge industry. And that really creates the industries of aerospace, communications, computers. And then that impetus is sort of continued a slightly lesser scale through the Cold War. And it's really uh, the government's uh, demand for high technology um, goods and that, that really drives, that gives us what gives us mobile phones, it's what gives us GPS, internet. it gives us the internet, all of that stuff. And that seems to me is the proper role for government. I don't think you can regulate to stop people being attracted to, a, 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 you know, a, without, apart from abolishing capitalism, that, that's bound to happen. But I think that there must be a role for government as a, it's very difficult for private industry, I think, to... It's innovation, fundamentally, I think, that prevents this... Na well, I would agree with you again, a natural tendency for income to polarise. Because if you think about it, as you said, it's the question of what proportion of the economy is going to profits. Well, there are lots and lots of individual actors in the economy. You know, everybody who's running a business is trying to maximise profits. So one would expect that profits as a share of the economy, perhaps... It's not an unhealthy thing in some sense, or it's a natural thing that that would rise, but that produces the inequality, I think, that sort of undermines and hollows out the economy in, in, the, in, the, in the longer run. The thing that sort of stops that is innovation, new industries, where you have to you put a new plant, you're employing new people, you're doing new things. And I think it's very difficult for private industry to do fundamental te technological innovation. It's just too expensive and it's too risky. And if you look at practically every single major new technological industry, whether it's mobile phones or computers or whatever, you can trace it back to government contracts usually connected to defence. And I think that that's sort of a very important role for government to take a sort of strategic view of things. So. I would, I mean, I, I, I was disappointed when, you know, Sheffield Forge Masters didn't get their $80 million. That seems to me to be a reasonable punt on an industry which you think might, might grow, you know, nuclear industry. So but also tax uh, measures to uh, higher property taxes on, on second homes, on, um, uh, on, on capital gains, for example. There's a lot to be done on that side to dissuade this enormous flow of money into these financial instruments. But um, I think you wanted to come in. Yeah. Um, almost just following up on that point, really, I was, I'm quite surprised that in, when people are talking about blame for this, very little seems to be allocated to politicians and the sort of broad political framework that's been placed for the last 30, 40, 50 years that has you know, it's allowed this sort of environment to flourish. And, um, Obviously, no, not a great deal has changed in, in that regard. So, with the, the Palestinian. You mean like political party financing rules? Not just no, political no, party the, 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 the way that the sort of 
broad deregulatory and very hands-off approach to all things, certainly to do with finance and banking, but also to you know, larger the sectors of the economy. That that approach has been, you could argue, started by Thatcher, but certainly continued under under New Labour and the you know the schmoozing of the city and something which you know Gordon Brown eventually I think probably came to regret quite strongly. Um, particularly when you're talking about financial innovation, that, that's where you can really trace it back to very weak regulated, very weak regulators. The FSA, you know, in theory should have been much stronger having been uh, an amalgamation of lots of previously existing regulators that ultimately didn't, couldn't lay a finger on the, the, the big institutions when it really mattered. Does Gordon Brown regret anything? <laughs> Francesco, do you want to come in? Uh, I mean, I, I, um, I'm, I'm a bit reluctant going down the path of grand changes in model and, and policy, or, or uh, you know, I just coming back to the question of, of um, what's going to prevent uh, these kind of things. I mean, I just very modest, and I think likely to happen, things that will that that would have changed many things is a central bank that cares about asset prices as, as well as yeah. goods and services prices. And, uh, and is willing to uh, to prick bubbles. I mean, that's uh, that's just a choice of the central bank, and, and it's a very simple policy. It doesn't require us to change completely the model of society. And uh, I mean, I'm sure that you know, if, if they'd be ready to do that, uh, if things if things get get, get as bad as again. Will the new structure in the Bank of England, with this uh, financial stability uh, division hand, headed by Andrew Haldane, will that make a, a significant difference? Do you think? I, I was more talking about just a simple interest rate policy. Just in simple interest rate. I mean, the, the, <coughs> all the central bank have been incredibly accommodating throughout the throughout the bubble. They didn't have to, and there was a debate. They just they just decided not to intervene. Well, you could have loan-to-value ratios, um, mm. which would stop. I mean, when you have they're reintroducing 95% mortgages in Britain, for example, but basically that's just renting um, yes. with an option if, if the house price goes up for the buyer. But the better thing would be if people can afford to pay, pay the loan back, they can afford to put up a deposit. And if they can't afford to put up a decent deposit, they're probably going to struggle to pay the loan back. But I just wanted to, um, on your point about deregulation, point out that this, uh, this is something I was trying to say earlier. It's not just an American issue we have now. Greece, look at Greece. You have lots of government intervention in the economy. You have the same piling up of debt, but that debt there was um, to sustain public spending and government-directed spending, and they still spent beyond their means. They just spent beyond their means in a different way. Yeah. So it's it, you can get the same crisis emerge in different ways when a society as a whole deludes itself into thinking that it's earning more than it is. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think it doesn't really matter. This is why I say that that you know it's, it's a progressive thing to re reduce the deficit because I think that. All debt is the creation of money and pumping money into the economy, and that tends to produce a lot of these problems. It doesn't really matter whether it's the government doing it. I mean, it obviously must make some difference, but at my very basic understanding of economics, I can't see what that difference is. But it's just, you know, that the, 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 the money coming into the economy. And I think, you know, if you want to talk about Gordon Brown, to me the big mistake is sort of an end to boom and bust, because really... That's, the goal, that's actually the Alan Greenspan approach because nobody, re what that really means is I don't want to bust. Nobody, if you, an end to boom and bust means an end to boom, which means you're going to clamp down on growth and slow it up because you think it might lead to a bust later on. And I, I think that's exactly what the, should, the policy should be. You know, when, the, when the economy is growing at trend, the government should be running a modest surplus so that when the inevitable business cycle leads to inevitable recession, the government can pump money into the economy to make sure it's short and mild. 
but you know we were running and the US government were running huge deficits when the economy was growing very strongly which is just an idiotic they, policy. They avoided little bus and got a big one. Yeah, exactly yes well it's very much like the analogy is you know for, forest fires if you never let their never let fire run through the forest mm. you just build up a lot of dead wood and then eventually you get an almighty <coughs> conflagration and that's what we've we've had. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, but the problem is it, it takes political courage because we demand that we, we everybody is so absolutely terrified of a recession, this is the worst possible thing, that the, the economy is not constantly growing, that we tend to punish uh, politicians very severely if there's the mildest downturn. So, of course, they're absolutely terrified of it. So they'll do anything to avoid it. And um, you can see that right now. You know, you can see, oh, my goodness me, you know, growth isn't quite as fast as we want it to be. And, I mean... To me, I, I wouldn't worry so much about GDP growth. I would be interested in what are living, what's happening to living standards. Because while we've had this period of growth, living standards for 90% of the population have not shifted. So really, for most people, there hasn't been any meaningful growth. You haven't even mentioned Spain, uh, which is the country that's really going into crisis right now and which may exit from the Eurozone with all kinds of global repercussions uh, because, uh, because that, that private debt and private debt is really difficult to restructure, yeah. unlike public debt. So you wanted to come in. Yes, thank you. Could I be a little bit unfashionable and uh, disagree with some of the... Oh, please. Yes. Could I be a little bit uh, unfashionable and disagree with some of the observations that have, uh, that have been made in there? I come from the world of venture capital, um, and there are a lot of people that I know that work at the markets, and I suppose the first thing I'd like to say is that there are people that are smart enough and did see this coming. Now, why didn't they speak up? It's because it wasn't in their interests to do that. Yes. So they kept quiet about it, and they let it run on until no, the did. inevitable happened. So they did much worse than that. They made it worse. They did do it because it was in their interests to yep. do that. No, I, I can tell you, i give you chapter and verses. Carry on. A couple of other points, if I may. Um, I think this situation that we're in is rather unique from previous um, situations in the sense that we have the availability and the unbridled use of leverage in the financial markets. This has never before happened on this scale. At the same time, we had a number of mathematicians put together a number of synthetic products, whether you call them CDOs, uh, CDDs, CDO squared, or... Um, setting up artificial entities offshore, uh, off-balance sheet financing to disguise the level of risk inherent in these products, whatever. You had a set of vested interests which was directed on making money in the financial markets headed in one direction. That was allowed. You can't blame the bankers at the end of the day. It was in their interest to do this. Um, why would they not? I think, from my perspective, the, the, the situation that we've got here is, and this is the, the crux of the matter, we have an alignment of interest between the financiers, guys that work in the markets, and the politicians. Now, whilst the money was coming in, people were able to buy their homes, strawberry pickers having homes beyond their wildest dreams. The politicians absolutely loved it. For, the, for them, it was the, the public, their voting public, having a, a tremendous rise in the uh, standard of their, their lifetime. So we had an alignment of interests between the political classes and the financial classes. Now, I guess in terms of the, the film that you've just made, isn't that going to be one of the lessons to learn from this future, that we never have this alignment of interest between the political and the financial interests? And at the same time, we have a greater degree of supervision within the, uh, the financial sector. At the end of the day, frankly, from my perspective, there is nothing wrong with a banker earning 100 million 
dollars in bonuses. He would have to have made a tremendous amount of money to have made earned that sort of bonus in the first place. Contrary to popular belief, bankers, uh, you know, banks don't pay out bonuses for nothing. The guys that earned these bonuses really made the money. The question is, what are the regulatory controls that, that I, 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 I would say, it, it, it's a, I think it's a problem for the economy when the banking sector, which is a service sector, is making, you know, 30, 40% of all the... It's a bit like if the electricity companies were making 40% of all the profits in the economy. I think we all reckon that somewhere we were paying too much for our electricity and this was actually a problem for manufacturing companies. And in some sense I've met, you know, talked to lots of people who are like you investing in companies who are feel that basically, you know, they get skinned by the bankers who are a kind of in an oligable they're a little cart the cosy cartel my Greek is uh, letting me down here um, on your question about, about this business about all this complex financial engineering I think there are two basically two crises which you have to sort of um, separate out in your mind there's the underlying crisis to do with the housing bubble and to do with uh, stagnating wages and then there's the financial crisis and that the financial crisis was to do with the banks, as we know, lose, they, didn't, they knew that some of them were bust, they didn't quite know who was bust, and so they stopped you know, lending money to each other and the whole system nearly collapsed. And that was very much, I think, it was to do with the collapse in value of mortgage bonds, but it's also particularly uh, exacerbated by these credit default swaps, which were these big bets which were really opaque and very, very large and took, you know, uh, uh, $10 million of losses and made it, you know, a billion dollars of, of liability. And it's interesting that the really, the, um, the big growth in the credit default swaps was dependent upon the creation of, of indexes of mortgage bonds which allow you to actually sort of, as it were, industrialise what had been a cottage industry of credit default swaps. And the ABX, I think the, the key index, the ABX index, doesn't get established until I think it's 2006. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really when, as you say, and it's Karen Weaver at Deutsche Bank worked out that this was coming. And, when, and like a typical Wall Street person, she's a very sweet woman. And she was going to be in our film until her own lawyers uh, prevented her from doing so. But, um, you know, like a good Wall Street banker thought, oh my God, disaster's coming, not, oh my God, what can I do to stop it? Oh my God, what can I do to make money out of it? And that was their answer, well, bet against it. And that process of trying to make money from the catastrophe actually really turned an economic, uh, a serious, serious economic problem, the bursting of the American housing bubble, into this global financial meltdown. That sort of, in some sense, gone away, at least for the time being. I'm not an expert on really what the state of the bank's balance sheets is. But we are certainly left with the fundamental economic problem. That's why we can't get the economy going, because particularly in America, there is still a huge problem. The hangover from the housing bubble is still really serious. And very high unemployment. Um, yeah. We will wrap up in just a few minutes, but do you want to come in on... Uh, this I, the, the 100 million to the banker, I just worry about that in that... Um, if you Good, if you give um, if you send all of you into a if I send all of you into a casino and gave you you know enough chips each one of you would come out with you know having put sixteen on the roulette wheel and one thirty six to one and and you might think that you're brilliant as a consequence of it but 
if you don't charge people the proper cost of trading, if you're allowing them to bet with other people's money, not just the bank's money, but then, of course, the taxpayer underwriting the banks behind it, then I don't think in the, that those bonuses are necessarily returned. In the days when, uh, I've just read a very good book on Goldman Sachs by William Cohen, in the days when Goldman Sachs was a partnership and the partner's own capital was invested in the business, they were much more cautious about trading than when they became a, a public company. And, and that's what They weren't making as much money. They weren't making as much money, they were making safer money. Yeah. But then, I mean, that... That sounds completely right, but then you have to ask the question, if these guys are just uh, randomly playing the roulette, why are shareholders willing to pay so much for their salaries? Why the shareholders of the banks? I mean, this is money that's coming from their own pockets. Good, very good question. Because they pay for all the politicians, and they think, well, they must, they've got so much bribery smushing around. <laughs> you know, well, the there is a major failure of corporate governance, particularly in America, where shareholders really have almost no rights. I mean, there's a huge, yeah. huge fuss in Congress about the idea that shareholders should have a say in the salaries of their employees, i.e. the CEOs. And this was considered to be, you know, socialism. No, no, shareholders have a say. <laughs> shareholders can sell, can sell the shares. And they can ignore it. They, yeah, but, no, they can say that, yeah. They, they, but they can't, yeah. That's, that's their say. That's their say. They don't have to hold They have to have, they have, to have, okay. they have, to have something. Uh, yeah. We really, we really do have to wrap up. I'll just leave you with uh, two final points. One is a corporate governance reform uh, to make all investment banking as distinct from commercial banking in the form of unlimited liability partnerships, unlimited liability partnerships. That would uh, bring us back to um, uh, prudential limits uh, in a hurry. And the second point is that a large part of the mechanism behind what we've seen tonight, uh, not by no means the whole part, but a large part, was actually captured in a statement that the Roman playwright Plautus from the third century BC had one of his characters say, which is, I am a rich man as long as I do not repay my creditors. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much.